The views and opinions expressed by the following program are those of the hosts, guests, and callers, and are not necessarily those of this station or Webster Rock Hill Ministries, its management, or other hosts or underwriting sponsors. Programs presented by KWRHLP are for educational and entertainment purposes only. Good morning. This is In Tune. How are you? This is Arnold Stricker. And this is One Thought Out, Ellie Wharton. One Thought Out. <laughs> We're glad that you joined us today. In Tune's a two-hour weekly broadcast which focuses and reflects on issues that impact and connects our community and the greater St. Louis area. Our topics include the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, history, housing, humor, and justice. You know, Ellie, uh, one of the uh, things that I enjoy about our show is we can talk about historic things that come around that really play an important role in our history. Absolutely. Today is one that uh, is is just like that. The Gettysburg Address was given on uh, October, on November the 19th, (laughs) way, way back when, 155 years ago. And on the line, we have uh, Ian Patrick Hunt, who's a historian and the chief of acquisitions at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum in Springfield, Illinois. Ian, welcome to In Tune. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, Ian. Good morning. You, we, you are. I just want to tell you, I have been there just about three three months ago. I came to the museum for just just drove up, you know, and came there for a visit. I was so intrigued. It is such a wonderful day trip. Well, I appreciate you so much saying that. We work very hard here. It is one of the best museums I think I have ever been to. I've been to a lot of museums. It is one of the most interactive. I think it is one of the most, uh, your displays, how things are portrayed is first rate. And uh, to me, it is one of the premier museums and libraries uh, in the United States. So kudos to you all up there. Thank you so much. We uh, want to talk about the Gettysburg Address, and you are a, uh, if not uh, a leading authority, the leading authority, uh, doing what you've done. Uh, we're going we're gonna to give you those kudos. But before we begin, if this is okay with you, uh, I have a recording of Richard Fritz Klein as Abraham Lincoln as presented at the uh, Lincoln Presidential Library Museum on November 19th, 2013 at the 150th. We would like yeah, to absolutely. we would like to play that. Give our listeners an understanding of what that speech was, and what you have to understand is, uh, Richard Klein, when he plays Lincoln, it's not like it's this big, deep, booming voice. Because would you explain, uh, Ian, to our listeners, what did Abraham Lincoln actually sound like? Um, you know, unfortunately, we don't have recordings of Mr. Lincoln. He he misses recorded sound by a couple of decades, but we have numerous descriptions of his voice by both people who admired him and people who were detractors of his. And everyone uniformly talks about the fact that Mr. Lincoln's voice is not the kind of booming baritone that you would expect from a six foot four man, but rather that it was it's sometimes described as shrill. It's sometimes described as trebly. It's I, I heard people refer to him. Mostly, these are detractors who said he sounded like an old woman. It's it's rather high pitched. Um, but one of the unique aspects of it is that it it seems to cover well because you can read about people. You read about these massive crowds that are listening to him, not just at Gettysburg, but at the inaugural speeches and and at other famous events. And the crowd all seems to be able to hear him very well. Uh, and of course, he's speaking in an era long before microphones and and giant you know speaker systems and so on and so forth. So, 
even though it's not what you expect, it's it's more high pitched. It it certainly covers well in a crowd. So it was a it was a great benefit to him. Okay, so let's listen to a uh, portrayal of Abraham Lincoln giving the. Uh, Gettysburg Address by Richard Fritz Klein at the Lincoln Presidential Library Museum on November 19th, 2013. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war testing whether that nation, or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as the final resting place for those who here gave their life that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this but in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate. We cannot consecrate. We cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here it is for us, the living rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom and that government of the people by the people for the people shall not perish from the earth. So you've been listening to Richard Fritz Klein, who was portraying Abraham Lincoln at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library Museum on November 19th, 2013. He was giving the Gettysburg Address, and on the line, we're interviewing Ian Patrick Hunt, who's a historian and chief of acquisitions at that library in Springfield, Illinois. Uh, Ian, what? let's set the table for this um, speech. And it was uh, after the Battle of Gettysburg, obviously in 1863. Several months later, the dead were still being buried uh, the battlefield still had corpses lying around, you know, horses were being burned, etc., and it was kind of left to the people of Gettysburg. Why don't you expand on that and, and set the table for us here uh, as we kind of crescendo up to the speech and then talk about the speech? Absolutely. People tend to forget that, of course, on July the 4th, the, the first day after fighting has stopped, that Robert E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia, they, they still very much believe that there's a fight going on and that they need to retreat back to Virginia. So they pick up the, the, 
the wounded that they can transport with them. But they immediately turn south, and they are trying to march to cross the Potomac to get back uh, into Maryland, or get back into Maryland, across the Potomac, and eventually get back into Virginia into safety. And of course, General Meade's army begins to pursue. And this small community of Gettysburg, which has just witnessed three of the most horrific days of fighting in our nation's history, is left with thousands and thousands of corpses and and thousands more of, of men who are wounded and who are laying in private homes and they're simply laying in fields. They're, they're strewn literally everywhere. And this small community is trying to deal with this issue. We also forget that it is July. Uh, it's hot and humid in Pennsylvania and the dead are immediately beginning to bloat and to decompose. And there is a great fear of disease and things of that nature that are going to be given off by these bodies. So they, they very quickly try to bury these men uh, in pits, they, they literally just scrape a few inches of dirt off the ground and try to lay the bodies inside, but they realize very quickly that this just doesn't work. The, the first time that it rains and the battle uh, is followed by large, heavy rainstorms, that it washes the dirt off of these dead. So the community and really the state of Pennsylvania come together and say, we, we need to create a proper cemetery. And it's one of, one of the, the biggest uh, boosters of this is a gentleman by the name of David Wills, who realizes that, that there has been this great sacrifice in Pennsylvania and that there needs to be a great monument to this sacrifice. So they spend most of the summer trying to, to create a proper burial ground. And the war continues. Uh, Meade's army is, is following after Lee and, and headed south. And uh, they don't get to stop uh, for for dealing with these kinds of situations. It's literally left to the civilians who are who are still living in Gettysburg. Well, Ian, you certainly have painted a very graphic picture. I mean, while you were talking about the situation, I mean, I actually found myself cringing. You know, just the visual. <laughs> I mean, you know, of it's July, it's hot and humid. You've got you know all of this going on with dead bodies and everything going around, and that was just so graphic. My goodness. <laughs> I apologize. No, you did a great job. I mean, what a story made for radio, right? <laughs> no, it's it's important to understand that because That's uh, right. you, you know the the civilians were doing all this work, and uh, then when they had set the cemetery aside, uh, there was a, a a feel that the cemetery really needed to be dedicated to honor the the fallen. And uh, was the governor? I'm get, trying to get my facts straight here in my head. The governor of Pennsylvania involved with this, inviting uh, all of the honored guests, et cetera, like that. Absolutely, he was. Um, governor Curtin, uh, who won re-election in the fall of '63, um, uh, was paramount on inviting. We we are pretty sure that he spent time with Mr. Lincoln and had explained to him the circumstances surrounding the creation of this national cemetery, the, their plans to dedicate the cemetery, uh, and their belief that they really needed the president to be on hand to make, as they always say, a few appropriate remarks. He was not going to be the primary speaker that day. Uh, they already had a gentleman by the name of Edward Everett lined up to give the main speech that day, but that they thought that the president could kind of set the tone he could he could make the concluding remarks you know isn't it interesting arnold this when when ian was talking it made me think about when we covered martin luther king um his speech i have a dream and how really that was not supposed to be the speech that was to be delivered you know and, and in this case this was not supposed to be the main speech but look at the magnitude of you know decades apart you know of course look at the magnitude of speeches that were not supposed to be 
<laughs> well, it's, and it's the power of words, especially yes. in, in the um, in the "I Have a Dream" speech, but also in the Gettysburg uh, Address. And uh, you know, you mentioned uh, Edward Everett, who was very well known as an orator, and that was something I think people expected somebody just to get up and and talk for a couple hours. And he talked for a couple hours, and uh, you know, I've got it here: thirteen thousand six hundred and seven word oration. And he's very mm-hmm. eloquent in what he said. Um, but it was, you know, nowadays people would go, okay, you know, all right, you've, you've kind of said it, you've gone over it, <laughs> let's right. get to the let's point. Let's get to the point. And uh, President Lincoln, you know, he got to the point, but every word was really, really crafted uh, extremely well. And I, and I have some information in front of me that Lincoln wasn't really feeling so hot going to Gettysburg from D.C. You know, maybe that's, I, I always try to separate fact from from fiction. And is this true or not? No, this is absolutely true. Um, Mr. Lincoln uh, was suffering from what is usually called varoloid. I always mispronounce it. Essentially, it is a mild form of smallpox. Uh, And his son, uh, Tad, Thomas Lincoln, was also suffering from smallpox. In fact, there was a fear by the Lincoln administration that Mr. Lincoln would not leave his son's side, that he was, because his son was so sick, that he would not make the journey to Gettysburg, um, fearful that he would lose his boy while he was gone. So there is uh, a slight recovery. Um, uh, Thomas gets better, and they decide that on November the 18th, they can go ahead and make the journey out to Gettysburg. But Mr. Lincoln is sick uh, when he delivers this speech, uh, and he will come home and he will spend a number of days in bed after this speech. But he realizes that it is a very, very important uh, event. This is going to be a turning point in the war. Not only did you have the great military victory at Gettysburg, you had the victory at Vicksburg, you had the victory at Fort Port Hudson, and the Lincoln administration had been reinforced. There were a number of gubernatorial elections that fall, uh, two of the most important being in Ohio and Pennsylvania, and the Republicans had won both, which was a reaffirmation that what the Lincoln administration was doing was good and proper. There had been a lot of fear by the Republicans that if you lose the Ohio and Pennsylvania governors' races, that those governors will decide that they are going to start pulling their their state's commitment to the war effort, um, that this is just really going to lead down a, a dark path. So there are a lot of things for Mr. Lincoln to be celebrating when he delivers that speech on November the 19th. And, and, you, and you know, it's interesting. I just kind of did a word count here because you were talking about the 13,000 word oration that was to follow and this was 272 words right right but how Mm -hmm. powerful when you start to talk about when you know how to use words and every word is has a specific meaning the power can be compacted you don't have to speak for hours yeah and which which kind of brings to another goes to another point uh one of these um what i would call myths is that on the way up on the train he wrote this on the back of an envelope uh which he did not do (laughs) No, no, he did not do that. Um, he pulled that out his iPad. <laughs> that's one of the great uh, stories about Lincoln, and it's one of the ones that comes out long after Mr. Lincoln's death. And it's 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 really meant to just reinforce Lincoln's greatness. It's this this notion that here is arguably the most important political speech given, certainly in our nation's history, perhaps given in world history. And that this man literally composes it in a couple of hours while riding on a train. Um, That is not true at all. 
uh, Mr. Lincoln understood the significance of this event, and we know for a fact that he actually practiced ahead of time. He, he did with the Gettysburg Address what he would do with most of his important speeches, which is he would start weeks in advance. When he had time during his incredibly busy schedule, he would write out a few words, sometimes a whole line, and then he would set it aside. And he would come back to it later in the day, and he would look at what he had written, and sometimes he would change things, sometimes he would add more, sometimes he would make scratch-outs. And the Library of Congress actually has what are known as the Hay and Nicolay copies of the Gettysburg Address, which we kind of refer to here as the practice copies, because they, they have scratch-outs. They're written in pen and pencil and pen. They're on different types of paper. It's very clear that these are not speeches that he wrote out in one sitting. These are speeches that he's going back to over great periods of time. So he didn't tweet this out at 3 o'clock in the morning, right? <laughs> Nope. 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 Nothing like that, huh? <laughs> no, no tweeting back then. Uh, so he, he went with uh, William Seward, John Usher, Montgomery Blair, who has a St. Louis connection, uh, mm-hmm. John Nicolay, and John Hay on the trip. And you mentioned uh, the Hay and the Nicolay copy. There are actually five known manuscript copies, correct? That is correct. Five are in the world. And, and you guys up there at the Lincoln Museum, there's a Bancroft copy and there's a Bliss copy, which is on display in the Lincoln Room at the White House. But you, mm-hmm. you have the Everett copy. Is that correct? That is correct. And tell us um, a little bit about why that is significant. Well, uh, you know, certainly any of the handwritten copies of the Gettysburg Address would be, would be very significant. But uh, for me, the, the Everett copy is extra special because... As we've already talked about, Mr. Everett was the primary speaker that day. His speech was so incredibly long, but he was moved. Everett is a literally a professional orator. He was a man who had been uh, governor of Massachusetts. He had been a senator from Massachusetts. He had been president of Harvard University. He had spoken for decades. He was who you went to during the Civil War when you wanted a great speech. And he wrote Mr. Lincoln a letter literally the day after the the uh, ceremonies at the cemetery and he said permit me sir to express my great admiration of the thoughts expressed by you with such eloquent simplicity and appropriateness at the consecration of the cemetery and then he goes on to talk about he says i should be glad if i could flatter myself that i came as near in the central idea of the occasion in two hours as you did in two minutes and a few months later, he will ask Mr. Lincoln, could I please get a copy of your remarks? He, there was not the VA system like we know today that helped with wounded soldiers or helped with the families uh, who had lost loved ones in combat. Uh, so many communities would create sanitary fairs, and these were specifically to raise funds for wounded soldiers, to raise funds for, for widows and orphans. And prominent people would, would donate things to these sanitary fairs so that they could be auctioned off for money. And Everett had decided that he was going to donate parts of his speech. Um, he was going to donate. He had kind of bound it all up in a notebook. Uh, it had pictures of the great generals who had been at Gettysburg. It had battle maps. It had all of his handwritten remarks. And then he said, could you please, sir, give me a copy of your remarks, and I'll bind it into the book together. So 
the president uh, acquiesced. Uh, he gave him a copy on February the 4th of 1864. He sent him the copy of the remarks. And this was all bound together. It was uh, sold at the New York Sanitary Fair, we believe, for $10,000, which was a huge sum of money in that era. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, was, it was the first one written after the speech was delivered. And it is the first of the handwritten copies in existence to use the phrase, under God that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom. Um, we think that Mr. Mr. Lincoln probably used the phrase under God when he was delivering the speech, but the Hay and Nicolay copies do not have that phrase specifically. Um, so it's special to me for that reason as well. Um, there's lots of reasons why it's special to me. I could talk for two hours about it. No, that's, you know, and these are, these are the kinds of things that we don't get a chance as citizens to really understand and uh, hear about unless we're having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with the chief of acquisitions from the presidential library and museum in Springfield. Uh, and, and that's, these are like, some people get lost in the details, but these are the details that really make our past and our history come alive. And you know, this is what makes museums in them in itself you know so intriguing it's not just as you walk past and you look at some memorabilia and go ah that looks nice it's when you're able to dig into the story behind that memorabilia that you find that even a simple uh necklace can have such an intriguing history that now you understand why it's in the museum and so I think Absolutely. that that's one of the things that's so good about your museum is that it digs it digs into the story <laughs> well, we appreciate that again. That's, yeah, uh, that's a that's a great uh, thing, and that's what I every time I go to a museum, that's really what I look for. You know, the artifact is like, yeah, okay, that's it's, it's cool. You know, but what really went on? What's the story behind it? And that's what I think is is so great when people come up to to Springfield, you know, and are able to partake of the of the library's resources and, and rich knowledge. One so, one of the the really difficult tasks in in the museum world is being able to create a connection with your visitor, mm -hmm. um, whether you're in an art museum or a history museum or, or whatever. Uh, it's being able to, to have those objects or have those graphics or that exhibit or whatever, reach out to them and touch them in some way. And, and each visitor is, of course, different. Each visitor is unique. So you can't just go with a tried and true that I'm going to wow you that this is the Gettysburg Address. So we typically, when we're designing our exhibits here, and when we're writing our labels and things, we, we look at that. We try to think because you're, when you have a 12-year-old school child who's looking at this, they are going to be captured by something completely different than a 60-year-old scholar who has studied Lincoln their entire life and knows the, the nth level of detail about why this speech is important, they're going to be moved by something completely different. And it's, it's a difficult task trying to encompass all of that into 75 words or 100 words, which is what you typically try to keep uh, text labels at. So uh, uh, we, do, we do try to think of everything we can as but, far as but, reaching out to our visitors. And I can see that that's why they pay you guys the really big bucks, because, you know... <laughs> <laughs> Because, you know, to be able to do that, you are so right when you think of all of the different artifacts that are in a museum, there, there's a lot that has to be said in a very short period of time, you know, and then too, you have to look at the reading level of people that are coming through, what their background is and what their general interest is. You know, there'd be some kids are coming through, they're only coming through because it's a, it's a field trip. 
you know, right. and, and you've got to reach out and go, okay, how do we grab that child that's just saying, you know, like, this is the, the absolute last place I want to be, okay? <laughs> well, we're, we're going to get them out of the classroom. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> that's which right. is what they want. But uh, and those kind of field trips, you know, they're, they're unbelievable kinds of things. We're going we're gonna to come up on a break here, uh, Ian, just want to let you know. But when we come back after the break, I want to talk a little bit about what you think stands out most important. Uh, Lee, about this particular speech from your vantage point, um, some unusual facts maybe that we've not heard about, um, maybe some other things like why does it endure as, as something that grabs people's uh, attention and their spirit uh, for our country. So we'll do that after the break. You've been listening to Ian Patrick Hunt, who is historian and chief of acquisitions at the Lincoln Presidential Library Museum in Springfield, Illinois. This is Arnold Stricker with Ellie Wharton of Intune. You're listening to KWRHLP 92.9 FM, your community radio station in Webster Groves, Missouri. Welcome back to In Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Ellie Wharton. We've been uh, having a conversation with Ian Patrick Hunt, who is historian and chief of acquisitions at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum in Springfield, Illinois. We've been discussing the Gettysburg Address, and where we left off was we were going to talk, Ian, about what what really stands out to you as most important about uh, the Gettysburg Address. Why is it this enduring speech that uh, children memorize that even Ellie memorizes when she's in first grade that's and, right and uh, I still remember it why why do we why do we really gravitate to to this particular speech the the speech is so incredibly remarkable for its eloquence for its brevity uh, for the fact that it kind of redefines the 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 goals of the war right there in the middle of it, right there in 1863. We are no longer simply a war of reunification. We are now a war set to reunify the country, but also to set other men free. Now, Mr. Lincoln does not specifically say we are fighting to free the slaves, but certainly... Uh, the line that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, there is no doubt what he is specifically mentioning here. So it's giving the war this this new kind of monumental um, meaning that, that we, are, we are finally going to do exactly what the founding fathers had intended when they said that all men are created equal. We will put this into play. Um, it's... it's funny because people talk about the shortness of the speech, but the shortness is what helps it. Um, much longer speeches would be much harder to memorize. Um, but it, the 272 words are very easy for people to come together. I think it also works very well for Mr. Lincoln in the fact that he does not stand up there and say, through my great leadership, through my administration's hard work, you know, we are guiding this. No, he very, very specifically says that, that why they are there is is to to talk about those who have sacrificed those those common men who had died who had fought who had struggled there to to make sure that democracy would be preserved and he even goes so far in the speech to say you know that the, the world will little note nor long remember what we say here but it can never forget what they did here so he's not trying to take any credit whatsoever for the actions that day, those days, I should say, during the battle, um, he, he's literally making it about the troops rather than, than his administration. Which was very um, characteristic which, of him. Right. He, it was, but it was not characteristic of politicians of that era or, or even politicians of the modern era. You know, um, 
the the fact that he is just basically dismissing everything that the administration had done for this battle uh to me is is yet another sign that that he he understands the tone of that day's events he understands who truly needs to be honored and it's the fighting men it's the fighting men who are still fighting it's the fighting men who were wounded and it's certainly the fighting men who died that day to preserve our democracy you know, there's no so. doubt that, you know, that speech has been dissected by um, people who are much smarter than I am, uh, who look at— Much smarter than I am, too. <laughs> <laughs> who look at uh, the, um, the, the text, and they uh, describe the eloquence and the word usage and the repetition of, as a matter of fact, in, in where he repeats in, a, I think it's a threefold manner, uh, we cannot— dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. They talk about how that, you know, that, that's always really good to use that triple kind of um, in uh, in public speaking because it emphasizes something. So it, you know, he wasn't, you know, here's this guy who was basically self-taught, and now he delivers one of the most uh, memorable speeches in in history. And you wonder, like, how does, it just, it just, makes me in awe about how these kinds of things happen and how when we go back to dissect these kinds of things, um, you know, you go, he wasn't some hick from Kentucky or some guy who who was, you know, a rail splitter in Illinois. He was a very learned man and very thoughtful and I think expressed uh, from his, from deep in his soul, what was uh, on his mind. And, and what's interesting too is that you do see the humility in this speech, um, especially when you look at this, the, the phrase, the brave men living and dead who struggled here have consecrated it, meaning the ground, they've consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. So, you know, it's, it, again, it's giving all credence to the men who fought and died and are still living and their effort, nothing about what a politician can come in and do, you know, and just because we're standing here, we're consecrating, we're hallowing this ground. It's like, no, forget that noise. (laughs) It's those men, you know, it's those people. Now, Ian, do you, what, what do you view as some of his sources? Because I know there's some um, diatribes out there about different, uh, where his sources came from, et cetera, like that. What are your thoughts on that? There are certainly a number of parts of the speech that you can look at earlier examples of orations, even going back, you know, in some cases, hundreds of years, uh, where phraseology is similar to what he's using in the speech. And I absolutely have no issue with that. Mr. Lincoln uh, was a wordsmith. He he looked back through history and, and picked out things that he thought were applicable that would be good for his speech. Um, and then he he crafted it using his own words as well. But yeah, there are there are certainly parts of it. Um, you know, one of the things that they for traditionally like to talk about is all the way back in 1384. Um, John Wycliffe wrote that the the Bible is for the government of the people, by the people, and for the people. You know, that was a phrase that was used by by others. There was a speech given in 1861 in Congress where they talk about government being of the people and by the people. And, and I don't think it's that Lincoln is trying to say, I am the first one who came up with this. He's simply reinforcing that that these are, are precepts, these are beliefs within our country uh, that, that are have long been held and 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 are true there there's no way to to 
negate these. So I don't think that, yeah, he stole parts of his speech from other people. I just think that he used phrases and ideas that were in common parlance at the time. Exactly. And you know that there were no plagiarism laws back then. So people, like you said, you know, I mean, that's another thing to consider. You know, there wasn't that norm of, oh, how many words have I used? It sounded like somebody else's words. It was a matter of taking what works and reinforcing it. And that's how I see it. Um, We have to look at the period of time that this was written, the resources available and say, you know, forget all this other you know, noise that we want to place around it and just focus right in on these words. And what is he really trying to say? And and the beauty of it is, is if you really close your eyes and think about it, you can almost see every word reflecting what's going on today. <laughs> yes, you can. You, you know, he uh, in going back to this a little bit more, uh, I'm looking at uh, Justice Chief Justice John Marshall's opinion in McCullough versus Maryland of 1819 where Marshall used the phrase, the government of the union then, whatever may be the influence of this fact on the case, is emphatically and truly a government of the people. And, you know, kind of illuminating that a little bit more, he, he, he talks about the imagery of birth, life, and death of a country, of the nation, I should say, because he, he does talk about the nation, and he, he capitalizes that um, we're not states anymore, we're, we're were kind of, you know, he always wanted to preserve the Union. What, what are your thoughts on, on that? On Lincoln's preservation of the Union or on, yes. on Justice Marshall? Yes, on, <laughs> okay. on Lincoln's preservation, uh, use, using all that language to, to really help people understand that, you know, we are a Union, we are a nation, we are not separate states, we're not, you know, divided. Uh, he, he really strove to keep the Union together. He absolutely. He, he understood that what the Founding Fathers had created here was, was unique that it was incredibly special and that it could not simply be destroyed because a small handful of individuals, primarily slave-owning Southerners, uh, would decide that, that their way of life or, or their, um, their society or culture was threatened and that you could not simply take apart what the Founding Fathers had created. He, he believed that the Declaration of Independence and that the Constitution were essentially the two great gifts given to us by men like Washington and Jefferson and Adams and so on and so forth, and that we would always be one one nation, um, that this notion that we were just this kind of loose confederation of states who occasionally looked out for each other uh, was was ludicrous. It, it was, it, we, he was going to preserve this. He was going to preserve what the founding fathers had created, absolutely. And it, and it was, too, that it was one nation under God. You know, so, mm-hmm. I mean, he was giving that kind of a coverage too. it was not like one nation under our Constitution that men wrote, you know, but he was saying that what we have here is um, special. Is special, is spiritually ordained, you know, and that that when you look back on everything that he's saying, you can see where his words really do tie in, you know, with the issues of the Bible. That, you know, that Absolutely. men should be free and then, you know, that this was something that was God given. So, I mean, that that's a beautiful thing of how he was able to combine kind of like church and state, but without, <laughs> without making it look like it was church and state, you know, being combined. Well, people said he kind of <laughs> talked, uh, not using King James uh, English, but he, he really was able to eloquently my words, rattle off a phrase. <laughs> yeah, he was able to do that. Yeah. And you know what, Ian and and um, Arnold, do you know that there is a personal connection right here at KWRHLP with the Civil War? We have a direct descendant. Okay, now I'm sure you've gotten Ian and my uh, 
uh, curiosity up. And see, that's what's supposed to happen when you're talking about things within a museum and history. And so we're supposed to get you like right on the edge of your seat. Okay. Are you on the edge of your seat, Ian? Absolutely. Okay. okay. I have to scoot back. <laughs> okay, okay. Scoot okay. Back. Now I'm on the edge of my seat. Okay. Now. Okay. Like, All what, right. What is it? Okay. Our connection is with our own Sean Green. And his connection with this is what? This. Okay. He is kin, distant kin to General George Sears Green, who defended the right flank at the Union forces at Gettysburg. Wow. That's wow. a big wow. That's a big wow. That is a big wow. We're glad the Union won. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine having Sean opposing you? No, we wouldn't want that, would we? I mean, and, and just so that you know, Ian, Sean is one of the people that keeps this show running. Okay, so that's why he keeps the whole station running. Everything keeps running. Okay. He, he gets paid a lot of green, too. <laughs> he gets paid in green. Yeah, he does. So what 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 is uh, an unusual fact about the Gettysburg Address that people might not know? Um. You know, there's there's so many different things about the speech, the 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 fact that you know it it was not widely um, panned as so many people today want to say. You know, they, there's there's a lot of belief that oh the speech was a failure. It was not a failure. Um, in fact, the the fact that Everett immediately asks for a copy, the fact that the great historian George Bancroft asks to include it in his his book of orations. He was writing a book of the great American orations, and he wanted to include it. Those things to me reinforce it. But it to me, the funniest thing uh, about the, the Gettysburg Address is that you can clearly see the partisan lines within the press, especially the newspaper press, uh, in regards to the reactions. And the, the, the example I always use here is because, of course, we're in Illinois, is that if you look at the Chicago Tribune's remarks about the president's speech the day after the address, they declare that his dedicatory remarks will live among the annals of all men. Now, just across town is the Chicago Sun Times. Well, it's the Chicago Times at the at that time, and would later evolve, I think, into the modern Sun Times. They were a Democratic paper. They wrote that Mr. Lincoln's words were an offensive exhibition of boorishness and vulgarity, and that the cheek of every American would tingle with shame as they read the silly, flat, dishwatery remarks of the man who has to be pointed out as President of the United States. So these are two newspapers (laughs) in Chicago, literally on opposite sides of the city, writing. And that that line was delivered November the 23rd. So it's three days after the speech is delivered, four days after the speech is delivered. So that really clearly kind of demonstrates that whether you were reading a Democratic paper or whether you were reading a Republican paper as to the responses to this. Um, As far as an interesting fact for, for our copy... Uh, one of the ones that people love is that our copy came to us in 1944, thanks to the school children of Illinois who saved up their pennies during the Second World War when this speech came up for sale. It was owned by a private collector, and the school children of Illinois literally bought the state of Illinois our copy of the Gettysburg Address. Very cool. With a little bit of help from Marshall Field III, the department store magnate. But that is uh, amazing. It was an effort that was put on by the wartime governor, Governor Green, and he knew that the state needed a patriotic pick-me-up, and he said this would be a great way to remind all Americans, and during the the ravages of World War II, this is what we are fighting for. 
So literally our speech is here because small children in Illinois donated their pennies and nickels. That's that's really cool. Now that is a great unknown story. I, yeah. I like that one. Yeah, we, we like those little <laughs> tidbits. Uh, you know, and you go to the museum and in the library and you can find these these things out. Um, you know, I in doing some research on this, I came across the program and the program uh, had music played by uh, Bergfeld's band and a prayer by uh, Reverend Stockton, Dr. Divinity, music by the Marine Band, Old 100, uh, Old 100, and or, then uh, Everett's oration, and then a hymn uh, that was sung by the Baltimore Glee Club, and then Lincoln's remarks, and then a dirge sung by the choir, So, and then the benediction. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I just thought... You know, normally you know there's a program, but I've never seen a program of this thing, and I was just kind of interested. I, I, I looked up, okay, let's listen to what, what Bergfeld's band played. Let's, let's listen to this consecration chant, and I, I couldn't find those things. Do you have, um, have you recreated those things uh, at the uh, library and museum at all, or do you have access to any of those things? I believe we do have access to all of the material that was done that day, um, from the the different orations given to or, or the different uh, uh, religious invocations given the orations given the music specifically that was played um i don't know that we've recreated it as far as like being able to simply hit play uh you know on a on a computer so that people could hear it but we could tell you um i can't tell you off the top of my head i'd have to go look it up but yeah we could tell you whatever music was being played that day um that day's events has been studied and restudied by literally thousands of, of scholars since the, the since November the 20th of 1863. That day has been studied. So there's very little aspect of the Gettysburg Address that has not been a, looked at in some form or fashion uh, by, by scholars either in the 19th century, the 20th century, or in the modern day. Would you consider that his greatest speech? That's a tough one. That's like asking what your favorite kid is. Um, <laughs> um, it, it is certainly his most well-known speech. It is. Um, I am very partial. I will tell you to his second inaugural address, right. uh, because he very specifically he, here he has this phenomenal opportunity. Where again, as a as a politician, he could have come out and he could have said, you know that that. The South stood up to us, and we've knocked them down, and we're going to make them pay. And and instead, he talks about that the war is is both the fault of the North and the South, and that only by coming together can we bind up the nation's wounds. It's the famous line in the in the second inaugural address. And and people in Washington are a little taken aback by it. They they are kind of expecting this kind of rip roaring, you know, we we're going to kick the South's butt kind of speech. And instead. Uh, uh, he talks about moving the country forward. He has a great vision. He understands that when the fighting stops, we're going to have to come back and be one country again. You know, and also what am- I... Oh, go on. I, I, and I'm sorry. I was just going to say the anger and the animosity was, was going to to stop that from happening. And he's trying to already set the stage. But go ahead. You know, and, and thinking about what you're saying, one of the lines that Arnold did on his, in his research said that at the end of the speech, there was no applause Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I thought that that was very interesting, considering the gravity of the speech, you know, the, the you know, that there was no applause. And so some people looked at it as, oh, you know what, he, he just didn't do the job. And other people said it was such dignified silence that people were that people were taking it in because it was so impressive. 
there was no applause. I think that a lot of the people were were a little bit shocked that it was such a short speech. But for every one of the the, the individuals who say, "Oh well, the, the no applause clearly demonstrates that it was was a flop, that it was not well received by the crowd," there are actual period examples of different individuals. There's there's one story that I remember all the time where there was a, a sergeant with a Pennsylvania regiment who had lost an arm at Gettysburg and he is standing in the crowd and he is listening to the president's remarks and he is openly weeping. I mean this is a this is a man among men, this is a man who fought at Gettysburg, this is a man who has been maimed at Gettysburg and he is seen to be sobbing uncontrollably as the president is speaking and he even says when the president concludes God bless Abraham Lincoln. So in his mind, at least, Abraham Lincoln had fulfilled his role that day in, in reminding people what those men had sacrificed. And so, again, every, every time somebody says, oh, well, the speech was not well received, I can show you dozens of examples of newspapers or private individuals who thought that it was one of the most amazing orations ever given. It, it probably grabbed people by their soul and was shaking them up a little bit, and they didn't. They they couldn't say anything. You know, I'm just guessing here. Um, what can we look forward to uh, going over to if we happen to travel over to the uh, the museum over the next couple of weeks uh, towards the end of the school year? What can we look forward to seeing over there? Well, we got a number of things going on. Of course, since we're talking about Gettysburg, we should probably mention that the speech will be on display. Our copy will be on display for, I believe, it's the next 10 days. Um, we we don't keep the speech out permanently because the speech, quite frankly, it's on paper. And even though we have created the best environment that we can today to make sure that that speech is not harmed in any way, it is still slowly degrading. There is nothing that we can do to stop that degradation except keeping it in complete darkness and keeping it in a perfectly climate-controlled environment. So when we put it out on display, we try to limit the amount of days that it's on display because we want this thing to be available to my great-grandchildren's children. Uh, so that will be on display for the next week to 10 days, so you'll be able to see that. So it's on, um, it's on display now? Uh, I believe it either went on display this morning or it will go. It will definitely be on display on the anniversary of the speech, gotcha. which is this weekend. Right. So, um, or Monday. Today's the 16th. Yeah, Monday. Sorry. I was thinking today was the 17th. Um, we also have our exhibit on the four presidents who had called Illinois home, one of whom also called Missouri home for a very long time, uh, which is an exhibit on Lincoln, uh, on Ulysses Grant, on Ronald Reagan, and on uh, Barack Obama. Uh, that was designed in-house. All of the artifacts were brought in from other institutions. You'll never see this exhibit anywhere else. That'll be up through the end of the year. Uh, and then, of course, we're always changing out artifacts in our gallery. And I believe this morning we opened a show on what Christmas in the White House is like. And we've borrowed from another of a, a number of other presidential libraries and museums. And you'd be able to see how different administrations have celebrated the Christmas holidays throughout the years. So there's all kinds of things to see if you guys come up here in the next few weeks. Well, well I think that Springfield better get a grasp on it because the St. Louisans were getting ready to hit. It's going to be a steady stream. It's going to be like an invasion. <laughs> it's, I look it, forward to it. It's a great trip up there. It it's an is. hour and 45 minutes, you know, even driving the speed limit. So yeah, I've even driven it up there on the speed, doing the speed limit because, yeah. because, 
because they don't play in Illinois. Let me tell you, they come out of like behind uh, billboards and stuff at you. So you better be careful driving to Springfield. You know, Ewan, I would love to be able to talk to you because you've written a book, correct? Uh, Well, I just had um, uh, some things published. I was part of a group that uh, wrote about myths of the Civil War. Uh, and I, that was published by, I believe it was Penguin Books wrote that one. And then I'm working on another one right now, actually, as we speak. So, Because you, uh, you yeah, responded but, about Lincoln being uh, called a racist at one time, correct? R- right. The, the idea for that book was put together was uh, simply to, to look at things that, that students and that amateur historians believe to be true because of misconceptions on the internet or, or things like that, but that professional historians know the truth about. So uh, I was asked to tackle the issue um, that uh, Abraham Lincoln never cared about African Americans, that slavery was simply a vehicle with which to further his political career, and that he was racist. Um, and so, yeah, that was the essay that I I focused on there. Well, let's just put it this way. I'm African-American. He could have been all of those things. I just wanted to be free. Okay. <laughs> In the end, I'm good with it. Okay. <laughs> We'd love to have you back on to be able to talk about those things because that's part of who we are and understanding uh, history and debunking myths and you know you read a lot of things out there on the internet most of them probably are not true that's why uh, good research is good research and it's important to do that but ian patrick hunt who's historian and chief of acquisitions at the abraham lincoln presidential library museum in springfield illinois on behalf of intune and ellie wharton and myself i want to thank you very much for coming on the show today and discussing lincoln's gettysburg address with us You are so very welcome. Thank you for having me. You have a great weekend, and uh, enjoy the 155th on Monday. That's right. Watch out for the invasion. We're coming. (laughs) (laughs) Take care, Ian. I'll let them know. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, sir. All right.